the Lord will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Gender-inclusive language is a very strange way to begin a sermon. Gender-inclusive language, it's the practice of uh, removing gendered language when you're referring to the divine. It's something that's been around for a while, but it really came into vogue right before I got to seminary more than 10 years ago. It's a willingness to confront the masculine pronouns that we often attribute to God, the, the fact that we often call God he or him or father. The reason being, uh, the reason to have gender-inclusive language is, of course, the fact that God is not a he, unless we're talking about specifically Jesus. But we'll save Jesus for Christmas. Of course, Scripture and the tradition of the church, grammar, it lends itself to this. Talk about God as Father, even in the scripture that Brian was just reading. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. It's in our scripture. We pray to God as Father. Just a few minutes ago, we were saying, Our Father, who art in heaven. Uh, Though there are lots of moments in the Old Testament when God actually gets feminine attributes, and Jesus, Jesus Himself, gives feminine attributes to God in the New Testament. We just rarely talk about them. Again, what's at stake here for us when we think about not using gendered language is the fact that God is not like us. God, to use an expression of Karl Barth's, is totally other. Therefore, whenever we use human attributes, particularly gendered ones, it makes God to be like us. And so when I was in school, and right before I was in school, there was a big push to start using gender-inclusive language. And this is a true story. We were told on my first day of school that every time we used a gendered pronoun for God, we would have one point taken away from our paper. You learn very quickly not to call God a he when you lose a point every time you do it. Now, perhaps you've noticed, and maybe you haven't, but I try really hard, I try my best to not masculinize God from the pulpit. I avoid pronouning God. And sometimes it makes for a strange sentence. That God did this, and God did this, and God has God's self feeling about what God did. It, it, our grammar makes it hard to talk about God without gendering God. But it's important, because God is not a man. God is God. Now, of course, there are some in the church who, in order to offer a corrective to this, rather than referring to God with masculine, they refer to God with the feminine. They refer to God as she, or God as mother. Uh, Just this morning at our uh, early service when we did the Lord's Prayer, uh, someone came up to me and they said, do you know every time we say that, I say, our mother who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's interesting to think about God as mother. And I think it's important because God, of course, is both paternal and maternal. But if you call God mother or you call God father, if you call God he or she, it still puts God in our terms rather than letting God speak to us about who God is. And yet, even with that, there is something more radical that we don't often talk about. There's something more radical than calling God our mother, and it's the fact that God has a mother. God has a mother. 700 years before the arrival of Christ, before the advent of Christ, the people of God were in a time of war and fear. The city of Jerusalem is besieged on all sides. It's during the reign of Ahaz. There is no hope on the horizon. And it's in the midst of this terror that the Lord asks Ahaz 
if he'd like a sign. Would you like a sign? And Ahaz inexplicably says no. I gotta tell you, if the Lord spoke to me and said, Taylor, would you like a sign? I would say, yes, please, absolutely. But no, Ahaz says, no, 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 I will not put the Lord to the test. So the prophet Isaiah laments. He says, Ahaz, is it not enough that you weary people that now you're wearying God? And so the Lord gives a sign, whether Ahaz wants it or not. And this is the sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Notably, Isaiah does not say a young woman. He says the young woman. The is the definite article. I know you've heard more grammar in a sermon already than you've ever heard before, but bear with me. It's important. The young woman. It's not just any young woman. It's the woman that brings the promised one into the world. We, of course, did not know who the the would be until Mary was singled out to be the mother of God, the mother of Jesus. Not any girl would do. It had to be Mary. Now, I think and I fear that it's difficult for us to imagine the reception of Isaiah's proclamation. We are so storied by the story of Christmas, moved by its majesty, that we can scarcely fathom how strange this is. The city is under siege. There is no hope for tomorrow. And the Lord says, I will give you a sign, a baby. Come on, God. What about a ruthless warrior or a fearsome king or even a charismatic leader? Don't you think that's what the people need? No, God says, the woman is with child and will name him Emmanuel, which of course means God is with us. That God chooses the woman as a sign that God enacts God's purposes through this woman is so confounding. What we dare to proclaim about God is that God willingly gets involved in the flesh and the blood and the bone of human life. The God we worship is inwombed in Mary. There's a reason we don't talk about Mary a lot in the church. In fact, there's actually a lot of reasons we don't talk about Mary. Most of them stem from the fact that we live still in a very patriarchal existence. Some of the reasons stem from the fact that we don't want to appear Catholic, that we're Protestant. We don't want to be associated with the Mary worship that sometimes happens in the Catholic church. And yet, to ignore Mary is to ignore the radical notion of the incarnation. The less we talk about Mary, the more men continue to feel as if they're superior to women. Patriarchy is, is real. Uh, the unjust assumption that men are superior to women. It is a real thing, it exists, and it's downright wrong, full stop, period. And not just because of our modern sensibilities of equality, it's wrong because God is born from Mary. And I, I understand the irony of someone like me that is a male standing up in an institution that is inherently patriarchal, saying we should not be so patriarchal. And we shouldn't. I fall prey to it all the time. These gendered notions of what one person should do versus what another person should do. I read a report a couple years ago that in the United Methodist Church, male and female clergy, you would hope, are paid the same amount. But of course, we're not. Female clergy in Virginia are paid on average $10,000 less than their male counterparts. $10,000 the same amount of time in seminary, same number of years serving the church, $10,000. If the church is not paving the way, then we have lost the plot. I'll save the rest of that for another sermon. It's important that we live under the shadow of patriarchy. It is real. And the church has a responsibility to combat against it. And the reason is not because we understand the world to be different. It's because it begins with Mary. 
Mary, the mother of God. In certain theological circles, we call Mary the Theotokos. Now, I don't mean Theotokos, God tacos would be pretty good. That's not what I'm talking about. Theotokos, in Greek, it means the God bearer. And so named, she safeguards the fleshiness of God. Without Mary, the God we worship is aloof, distanced, removed from us. But with her, the God we worship is as close to us as you are to each other. Because God becomes us. There's something so outrageously particular about the fact that God's fleshy presence in the world is located in the womb of an unmarried teenage girl from Nazareth, which is made all the more confounding when you realize that Isaiah said this would happen 700 years before it did. As I said during the children's message, we we tend to lob all these titles and and attributes to God. God is almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, whatever big seminary word we want to use. And they're all true. I mean, God is the author of the cosmos, after all. But to claim God is enfleshed, that God has a birth and a death, is at the heart of the scandal that makes our faith faith. Even Martin Luther, who so famously broke away from the Catholic Church because of their insistence on worshiping Mary, Martin Luther said, it's important for us to remember that Mary breastfed God, that Mary rocked God to sleep, that Mary prepared broth and soup for God. Have you ever thought about the gospel that way before? I rarely do. And yet, to forget that is to forget how wonderful this story is. Because if we take seriously the strange new world of the Bible, it means that Mary also changed God's diapers. That Mary taught God songs to sing. That Mary taught God the stories of the faith that she even shared with him the promise of the Messiah who also happened to be the one in her hands and in her arms when she rocked him to sleep. Charles Wesley, great hymn writer, also said, Mary is the one who gave all things to be. What a wonder to see God born of this creature and nursed on her knee. Mary, an ordinary young woman from Nazareth, she keeps the incarnation scandalous. Mary gets three of the best words in the gospel. Let it be. I love to say that's the gospel according to Paul McCartney. It's actually the gospel according to Mary. Let it be. She's the first one to respond to the very best news. Mary writes the very best song. I think I can say that, Deborah, that Mary writes the best song. We call it the Magnificat. That song has been sung by Christians more than any other song in church history. She writes it. It shows her love, her care, her knowledge of the scriptures, her hope for things not yet seen. Mary, she's present, and not even that, she's the instigator of Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee when he turns water into wine. It's because of Mary. Mary is one of the only people left when Jesus is hanging on the cross. Mary is also in the upper room at Pentecost. She's the only woman named. She receives the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and helps birth the church, just as she births God into the world. I I can go on. You know what my favorite fact is? Throughout the early history of the church up through the Middle Ages, more paintings were made of Mary than of Jesus. Mary. The young woman with child of Isaiah's proclamation is Mary, the flesh and blood mother of God. She's not an idea. She's not a myth. She's a real person as real as you and me. She is a real person who made decisions upon which our faith depends. I think we often fail to embody the embodied nature of our faith because at some point we assume that faith is about your mind. It's about what you believe. It's not about what you have in your body. We'd rather have ideas and, and slogans, and we do the, use these things all the time, ideas that 
help us make sense of the world and slogans that help us behave better to fix the world. But the witness of faith is not a slogan. It's not an idea. It's not something that you can summarize on a bumper sticker or in a tweet. It cannot because our faith hinges on a young Jewish woman named Mary. In less than a week, we will dress up all of the children of this church for our Christmas pageant. And perhaps we would do well to remember that not only was Mary real, she was also very unlikely. That God chose Mary from a forgotten town with no hope for the next day is wild beyond imagining. That God chooses any of us for God's purposes is downright outrageous. We would never have done it this way if it were up to us. But then again, we are not God. Thank God we are not God. Can you imagine how much we would muck it up if we were? We already have. Because of the proclamation that is present in Mary's womb, God gives us more than we deserve. God even gives us reason to be patient because the cosmos hinges not upon what we do, but upon what God does for us. So even here on the last Sunday of Advent, God gives us reason to wait. Not unlike the Israelites waited 700 years for this promise to come true. Not unlike Mary waited nine months with her belly continuing to swell. Not unlike the disciples waited three days after their Lord was crucified. Waiting. Waiting is part of who we are. It's part of the discipline of learning what it means to be a creature of time. As was so read during the lighting of our Advent wreath, we are creatures of time, and time is a gift and a burden. That we have time at all is nothing short of God's grace, but our time is limited. Some of us have more Christmases ahead of us than in our past. Some of us only have a few Christmases left. That's a daunting word. We must be born and we must die. Advent refuses to let us pretend otherwise, and yet Advent stories us. It teaches us who we are and whose we are. Stories, of course, come in all shapes and sizes. Some are short, some are long, some are funny, some are not. Some are defined by all sorts of words. Some are defined by three. Let it be, for he is risen. All of us are storied creatures. And strangely, the good news of Advent is that our time is storied by Jesus Christ, born of Mary. She makes our stories possible because she bears God into the world. God takes on flesh and dwells among us, which gives us the grace to be and become fully human. In other words, I think it's rather extraordinary when we can take a step back from the whole thing that we know the name of God's mom. Her name is Mary. And yet even more extraordinary is the fact that God chose to come and make time for us, redeeming our time and making possible the salvation that disrupts our time forever. Our time, whether short or long, is redeemed because Mary's son is Emmanuel. It means God is with us no matter what. So hear the good news. This year, whether you are on the nice list or the naughty list, God is with you, no matter what. This year, whether you have gobs of presents under your tree already, or if you haven't even had the time to get a tree or gifts at all, God is with you, no matter what. Whether you have more Christmases ahead of you or you only have a few left, God is with you, no matter what. Hear the sign. The young woman is with child, and she shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. It means that God is with us, no matter what. No matter what. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
one God now and forever. Amen.